0: Schools, by and large, don't want to be doing this. They don't want to be forcing their nurses to be dealing with thousands of swabs every day. They would much rather see people test at home.
1: Hello, and welcome to More Intelligent Tomorrow, a wide-ranging exploration of the potential impact of AI on the world around us, as envisioned by the future heroes of the human and machine intelligence revolution. Can we reopen confidently with rapid at-home testing? We'll discuss this and more with Michael Mena on today's episode. And now, your host, Sally Embry.
2: All right. So today we have Dr. Michael Mena on the podcast with us. And so I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being here. And I won't call you Dr. Mena again after this. I'll probably just call you Mike for the rest of the call since we've known each other for a while. But I just wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. I think most people know who you are by now. You've been on pretty much every major media source in the U.S. But yeah, if you could just take a second to to introduce yourself, that would be great.
0: Sure. I'm Michael Minna. I'm a faculty member at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm an epidemiologist and immunologist and also a physician at Harvard Medical School where I oversee molecular virology diagnostics, which all of those combined have come into focus during this pandemic.
2: Mike's what I like to call a doctor doctor. He's an MD-PhD. So a super doc. um and he's been leading the way in terms of being a vocal advocate for antigen testing when it comes to fighting COVID-19. How did you find yourself getting into that, Mike? How did you find yourself getting into that fight?
0: Oh man, it really started in January or so of 2020 course. Normally what I do, what my lab does, and is monitor people's immune systems and immune responses in part for understanding basic biology of, of infections. But also we use the immune system as a way to monitor outbreaks. And we couple all of this immunological data and these technologies that we develop around immune responses. And we use them in epidemiologic frameworks. Um, So that put us, that put a lot of my research at the beginning, just obviously COVID was relevant and we were modeling some aspects of COVID back in in January. And at the same time, I was, because I oversee viral diagnostics at Pregnant Women's Hospital, one of the teaching hospitals at Harvard has. It led to my modeling work essentially got us get me very involved with January and February. I was trying to convince the hospital to start testing. Most of the hospital leadership laughed at me and, and said, why would we test for coronavirus? and Why would we create this test? So that immediately got me started thinking, OK, the hospitals aren't going to move quickly and this virus is going to be upon us very quickly. Uh, so I went to the Broad Institute and started a big testing operation, a PCR laboratory based testing operation at the Broad. And now that's probably the largest or at least highest throughput laboratory in the country. But even that, even working with the Broad and their amazing teams there to get testing to be do over 100,000 tests a day in this one lab, it it was readily apparent that still wasn't going to be enough. So it led me down this whole new area of science of trying to understand what are new approaches to testing, how can testing more from from essentially a diagnostic medical tool to a true mitigation strategy and public health tool and, and what kind of tests would we need to be able to make that a reality. And so that's the short story of how we ended up talking here, I would suppose. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then where we're at now, essentially, it's been over a year, which is crazy to think about there's multiple at home tests hitting the market or have hit the market and been approved. There's probably many more on the way, or there's many more on the way. How do you feel about the outlook of these tests going forward?
0: Yeah, I guess just to, to, before I answer that question, people might ask the question, like, why do do we need at-home tests? What's the point of them? And the purpose of at-home testing, or at least wide-scale distributed testing, has morphed over the course of the pandemic. Back in, in June and July, or May, June, July, you know, when I really started pushing for this and building the science around this kind of testing... It was as a way to prevent what what ended up happening in the fall. It was a way to suppress the outbreaks that would arise that were this virus is is following very predictable patterns. We knew it was gonna tick up in October, November, December, and then drop again in February. That was fairly obvious. So now a lot of people say, okay, unfortunately we didn't get these tests available to help mitigate spread for, for the fall and winter. What's the point now we have vaccines? And the point is still more or less the same. Although we're having a lot of people who are protected, uh, we still have opportunity to stop local spread and ideally to stop spread that's probably going to happen again this October, November, December. So that gets us to sort of where we are. The CDC and the White House this past week came out and, and described new policies and new guidance for screening testing. They would like to see rapid antigen tests, or just rapid tests in general, be utilized. The closer we can get tests to the person who's using a a swab, who's getting a sample collected, the better. Uh, A two-day turnaround time test just doesn't really cut it to stop transmission. and so, where I see things going now is at the same time that we're seeing testing sort of start to decrease in terms of its sort of desirability, or people aren't going and waiting for hours in a line to get it because of vaccines, we're actually seeing places want to open up. And so now we have this interesting equilibrium forming where the need for testing is dropping because incidence is dropping. But at the same time, the need for testing is in a different way opening is increasing because businesses are finally saying, okay, we want to just open up. Schools are saying we want to open up. And and the way to do that the most safely is to have screening programs set up. So we are starting to see these tests change shape, change what their purpose and intended use is. And I think we're starting to see movement in the direction of at-home, over-the-counter type of rapid tests. But there's still some major regulatory barriers, as we'll probably talk about, you are well aware of.
2: (laughs) Were you excited to see the new guidelines around screening? What were your thoughts when you saw those get released? And were you hoping for something more? Or, yeah, how are you handling the news?
0: (laughs) Yeah, certainly. The guidance coming from the CDC this past week, I think, was a welcomed set of guidance. I know that Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, has worked hard to kind of make that a reality. I have uh, advised the CDC along the way on different aspects of it. And... I think that it was, I think that it was absolutely essential that they put this guidance out. Uh, of course, I'm always wanting the language to be more clear, but taking the CDC's perspective, I think they're in a pretty tough spot right now. The CDC and the White House have both made it very clear that they want rapid testing available. The Biden administration has made it very clear in the first day in office, made it very clear with the American Recovery Act. The wording put rapid tests like up, up front and said, Americans will have rapid tests. Now with the CDC guidance, that's you know being pushed even more along with the White House's announcement around k eight screening this past week. So I think that those are really good. Unfortunately, these entities are really tied down a bit. They don't have the tests available to them to actually create the strategy and the policy that they want to create. They're kind of hinting at it. And the CDC is pretty much saying this is what is the right way to go. But they have to continue, they're they're at the whim of sort of the FDA regulatory environment, which is not keeping up with the science. And so unfortunately, CDC has to be tempered in its ability to, or in its sort of suggestion of using rapid tests, because it recognizes that rapid tests just simply aren't yet available. They could be, but they're not yet available to to most Americans. And so they're creating guidance, which is sort of a hybrid around, this is what you could do for screening with rapid tests, but this is also what you could do with screening if you're sending your tests out to a laboratory to get pooled and and processed and returned in one or two days. So those are two very different approaches to screening, but at the moment we don't really have another option. Most of the testing still has to be PCR-based.
2: Are there things that people could do at home to help encourage move things along? I know you were part of like an open letter initiative, and you know, I joked at the top that you've been on every major (laughs) media (laughs) podcast. I know you've been a vocal person around there, or a vocal advocate for this, what can people be doing to try to express support for this? Is that even an option?
0: The short answer is yes, it's certainly an option. People can let their Congress people, let their senators, let their representatives know that they are wanting to be able to test at home before they go to work, test their kids at home before they go to school. School and business leaders can push this idea that, hey, they don't need to, these entities, a the school shouldn't necessarily be forced to become a laboratory. Schools, by and large, don't want to be doing this. They don't want to be forcing their nurses to be dealing with thousands of swabs every day. They would much rather see people test at home, I think, and figure out a system to enable that kids are being able to be tested at home Data is being uploaded and we're keeping schools safe. So I think that there is certainly there, there are things people can do, but it's at the end of the day, it's a it's an FDA's decision. The tests, of course, you all are producing. You have tests that you could that could be out to the public. Many companies have produced high quality tests now and the FDA regulatory landscape just isn't keeping up. With the science in terms of how to evaluate these most appropriately. So I think that is if there's if our representatives recognize that these tests are are really will be used and are desired for from people for at-home use, I think that there is a role there. We're seeing people like Representative Kim Schreier, who is in, in Washington, who has been a major advocate for these tests, and just takes a few Congress people to really push things along.
2: Yeah. Kim's been wonderful at trying to push this forward as well. So I guess backing up for a second, like when it comes to screening, can you help define, I I know there's a lot of confusion around these different categories. Can you define what screening is and, and what makes it different and why is it important?
0: Sure. Screening can take multiple forms. There's diagnostic testing on the one hand, and then there's public health testing. Diagnostic testing is what we normally think about as testing. It's you go to a doctor, you get a prescription, you get a test. Diagnostic testing is not the type of testing we need during a pandemic, but it is the only type of testing we have thus far authorized for the most part during this pandemic. Every single test that's been given in the United States for the most part during this pandemic has been diagnostic. There's been some doctor's signature. Most of the time, people don't even know who that doctor is. And that doctor is getting paid and it raises costs. And it limits access to testing. What the country really needs and what the world needs to mitigate spread of a virus like this is not expensive medical diagnostic testing. It's public health testing. And there's multiple types of public health testing. Screening, I think, is one of the most powerful, in particular, frequent screening. So this is is a a form of testing where people could test themselves, especially if we had these rapid paper strip type of antigen tests they could test themselves multiple times a week, say twice, two or three times a week. And that would be enough so that if somebody is exposed and is infected and maybe doesn't know it, they find themselves as positive and they're empowered to actually take uh, the initiative to isolate themselves, to not go and infect their family members and their loved ones and their coworkers. That's the type of screening that can really bend the arc Uh, of of, of an outbreak, keep outbreaks from arising. We've published a number of papers now and and have done some of the more basic science on this idea, where it's the frequency of testing and screening testing in particular of of people who don't necessarily know that they're infected. And it's the speed of results that matter the most. We've focused so much on these very high sensitivity uh, laboratory-based PCRs. But that misses the point. We end up doing fewer tests. We don't need that kind of sensitivity to identify somebody who's infectious. We only need to be able to identify, say, uh, a million viral particles per mil rather than a hundred. And so we can use these real paper strip type of tests that people could use over and over at home. They take 30 seconds to use. They take 10 minutes to result out. And then you look at the result. And that's the kind of test that people could use twice a week without much issue. And that would be enough to keep R below one. The whole point of all of this is if our goal is to slow spread, all you have to do during an outbreak to slow spread is keep R below one. If you have 100 infections, you don't have to have a screening program that's going to stop 100% of them. You just need a screening program that's going to stop 90% of them from spreading forward. If 100 people go on and infect 90, that sounds like a failure, but that's actually a really good result. If we can get 100 people to infect 90, and we do that for four or five weeks in a row, then all of a sudden we have 30 people infected instead of uh, 600. If you have if you allowed this virus to go how it normally does, which is 100 people infect 130, then four or five weeks later, you have 600 new infections per day versus 30 or 40. So that's sort of the benefit of exponential incline or exponential decay is what we really want. And this sort of screening, this rote to sort of repeat screening could get us to keep our below one and stop outbreaks from even emerging.
1: You're listening to More Intelligent Tomorrow, an artificial intelligence podcast brought to you in high fidelity by Data Robot.
2: So a lot of the technology around this is, we've discussed before, like lateral flow assays, which are are not new, they're new, they're <laughs> they've been around for a while. So, you know, what has kept getting that solution out the door? There's a there need to be more innovation in the space. And if so, what type of innovation is required?
0: frankly the innovation doesn't really need to be there's a lot of tests that are working just fine the innovation really needs to be on the regulatory side of things we have to innovate our regulations to keep up with a pandemic like this the tests are working just fine we know that they're working just fine because we have a couple that are actually authorized to be used Abbott has their binex now and Quidel has the QuickView Abbott is kind of the gold standard and I would say Quidel doesn't work as well as some of the other tests that aren't yet authorized so the tests but the tests are there is the point. And what's not there to get these things in use are two pieces. One is the regulatory landscape needs to change, and I can discuss that. The other is certainly how to report results from uh, a test. Now, there's different philosophies about whether reporting is needed, should be possible, should be, you know, how it should be done. Especially for tests being performed at home, we don't want to go, we don't want to go dark and have no idea what's happening At the population level so we want some reporting but i would argue that we want voluntary reporting we want super simple voluntary reporting for at least some parts some people won't won't test specifically because they don't want to report and that's reasonable we don't have catchment we don't have like economic catchment to catch people who need to isolate so we can't go and ask somebody who needs to quarantine or isolate to do so if they're if it means that they're going to go hungry and this has been a disaster I would say in our country that we have yet to set these these systems up to just keep people, to incentivize people to stop spread who would otherwise have to go to work. So I think we need, there's a number of pieces that still haven't been put in place this far. We have half a million dead, and we still haven't acted in an appropriate way that's commensurate with this pandemic with the exception of vaccines. So I guess to to back up, I think what needs to happen from a test perspective is the test technology is there. The regulatory landscape, I think, needs to come up with a new, the FDA needs to come up with a new approach to understand how to regulate a test that is not a medical diagnostic test, but whose actual sole purpose or or main purpose is to prevent population spread. And that kind of test needs to be measured with very different benchmarks versus the qPCR test. In fact, it shouldn't even be compared to the qPCR test, it should be compared to some other gold standard antigen test, for example. I would argue that the Abbott binex now works well enough that it should be the gold standard benchmark against which every other antigen test is measured. And if you do better than that, great. If you do 90% as well, still great. Instead, the FDA requires that they're all measured against a qPCR which ultimately is just the wrong benchmark. And and we've actually shown mathematically in unpublished work now, but we'll publish it soon, that the ask of the FDA is mathematically impossible to get a screening test that's for asymptomatic use. The benchmark that they've placed against qPCR is truly an impossible ask. Um, The technology I think we're seeing a lot, as these tests have become sort of more real, as the as policymakers have started to realize, okay, the tests exist, we may well see them. Now people are starting to say, okay, before we get ahead of ourselves, we need reporting. And that's where, in my opinion, as where companies like DataRobot come, come in. And you're good dealing with data and reporting, and you could probably develop really good reporting structures, creating the software that will enable these tests to move forward, that will enable sort of one-click reporting to any public health agency based on geolocation or something like that, would be an incredible advance. Right now, we've seen pretty poor quality apps be developed with these tests. And that's because the apps, the again, regulation has required that the app that the test manufacturers get into the software space, which doesn't make much sense to force it's that. Still still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think that those are some of the issues that, that really
2: need to be tackled. Yeah, we feel pretty passionately about reporting. And we actually, so we, we are going to be seeking FDA EUA authorization for the ContagionNet test, but we are going to have to follow the reporting guidelines. But our original vision for ContagionNet, one that we want to kind of hold on to a certain degree, just to be able to show people like what is possible, was actually designed around anonymous test reporting. So an individual doesn't have to share that much information about them, but we still understand where outbreaks are occurring. So you can actually be responsive and then that person doesn't have the stigma associated with them in terms of um, being a positive case. We had a couple examples, really interesting examples of when volunteers were using uh, the contagion net system where they would essentially like test positive and then they were like, we always recommend that you go get a confirmatory PCR and they'd be like, can I just hunker down at my house? <laughs> like, They're like, I won't leave for 10 days, but I just don't want anybody to know. I don't want this to like potentially prevent me from getting the vaccine in a couple months. And so they really wanted to just make sure that they didn't want to be on the record as someone with COVID. They wanted to be, they were willing to like take the right actions at the right time, but they didn't want that label, essentially.
0: That's exactly what we found in surveys of Americans. and And that's exactly what, a number of us have been calling for. I mean, exactly that. We should make testing. You know, there are a lot of Americans that don't want to get tested just because they don't want to be reported with their name. And this is this should be totally fine, fortunately or unfortunately. I'm not, it depends on where people lie in their sort of societal beliefs with medical information. But we have taught people from the time they're babies in this country to not give up their medical information. We've created safeguards so that medical information never leaves the individual and the doctor. And then an epidemic comes around, and we just assume expect people to be willing to give up all of their medical information or these pieces. That was a a terrible oversight on the part of America to assume that Americans should just be willing to do this. So instead, we saw exactly what you're getting. We saw people decide not to get tested at all because they didn't want to be reported. And my personal feeling is that the option for fully anonymous testing makes so much sense. The barrier to it is that we have a lot of public health agencies that can't see their way around a different approach to testing. Traditionally, testing has been considered a means to just do contact tracing, and it's been considered that contact tracing is the intervention, and testing is just to allow public health agencies and the top-down approach. But the advent of rapid testing and the rollout of wide-scale rapid testing can flip that entirely on its head. We don't need contact tracing to be the end-all be-all. If we have enough people doing rapid tests on their own anyway, then people will find out on their own much quicker than any contact tracer would get to them, that they're positive. And so if we could make testing, testing can morph into this thing where it's still, it can be fully anonymous, can still report all of the data to public health agencies who want to, re, who want to monitor the epidemic. But the contact tracing bit can be dropped out because if you really scale these things up, the point of contact tracing is just to tell people that they need to get tested. I mean, essentially. And so if everyone's if you have half, you know, 50 or 60% of a community already testing regularly, anyway, that's much more of a population getting tested than contact tracing would ever be able to contact in the first place. So If we can get public health agencies to see their way towards a new era of mitigating responses, then I think that everyone would or should be in support of anonymous testing and anonymous reporting rather.
2: Do you think for, I guess, for this pandemic, I know many of us don't believe that this pandemic is over. There's going to be still a long road for the couple months ahead, maybe even years ahead. But is that a way to think about future pandemic preparedness as well? How will we change the regulatory mechanisms going forward is is that an opportunity or is there other methods that would be more beneficial when we think about pandemic preparedness
0: no I think we'd be remarkably short-sighted if we don't if we don't take this opportunity to think of new ways to deal with an epidemic I'm, there's a part of me that's like losing faith quickly that we ever will because because we are a year over a year into this and we have half a million people dead and we've barely moved the needle in terms of our regulatory uh, landscape that said, we obviously have a new administration a new cDC leader, and I think that what we're seeing now is is a real push at the c d c to to at least devise and craft new guidance around how to potentially prevent spread. I said at this time last year that and it wasn't just me, many epidemiologists that contact tracing won't work, and laboratory based pcr type of testing and contact tracing just can't work once you have a lot of cases um I've been astounded to see that advice. Everyone knew that. Every expert in the world essentially said contact tracing doesn't work when you have a lot of cases. Nevertheless, every public health agency in the United States, anyway, just kept plotting that course. They said, okay, we have a lot of cases. We're still going to try. And we wasted a lot of energy and failed to contain any spread because we weren't willing to pivot to actually effective approaches to mitigating spread. I hope that we are learning enough now and that we're going to see benefits to essentially teach a new way uh, of how to stop spread in the future. I think rapid testing, we should be building this infrastructure today as part of pandemic preparedness tomorrow. If we don't do that, we're just fooling ourselves. This isn't the last outbreak. Pandemics are becoming more common, not less, and they'll continue to become more common, not less. I think building this infrastructure today to, to have the ability to scale up rapid testing is essential. Testing is so is crucial to to being able to just understand so many aspects of a pandemic where it is how fast it's moving who it's hitting quickest what are whether our our other efforts are actually working or not working if we're not testing we're blind and we don't want to be blind in a pandemic so I think that this is going to be a crucial type of tool for the future, you know, and, and a lot of other strategies too. wastewater testing, that's a massively beneficial public health tool, not just rapid antigen tests, but, but rapid at home molecular tests are coming along. So there's a whole slew of, of new tools that so far we're not using effectively or efficiently, but I hope that we'll learn before this pandemic is over.
2: It sounds like you've met I, well, I know you've met lots of different people over the course of the pandemic, probably people you didn't get to interact with previously, <laughs> new partners, people with new ideas. Has any of that given you hope throughout this or is it still mainly the frustration or or do you feel largely the frustration around how slowly things have moved in other aspects of the response?
0: No, certainly the innovation, the people I've met, the scientists, the business people, seeing seeing the community rally around sort of new innovative approaches and really fill in the void where the FDA and other regulatory agencies and our government, up until you know recently, has really failed. I think that's been extremely inspiring. You know, I, I I advise a, a company called Detect, and they're making rapid molecular tools. But getting to know that team and getting to know Jonathan Rothberg, who is a, a very famous scientist and entrepreneur, who has developed things like next gen sequencing and, and such. To see that this massive new effort coming from scientists everywhere to sort of miniaturize testing and miniaturize devices that are going to sort of replace in many ways the need for the type of laboratory testing we normally do. And normally I do direct a a laboratory in a hospital, but that's good for one thing, you know, that's good for the patients in that hospital, but it's certainly not a public health entity And to see the innovation that's all moving towards this idea of at-home testing, you know, what I would really like to see in the future is that we don't have physicians having to be a barricade between us and knowing what's inside of our body. If I want to know my blood count, I should be allowed to know my red blood cell count without having to go to a doctor. I should be allowed to know if I have virus in my nose without having to go to a doctor. It's amazing that this long into society, we still have this God complex with physicians, and that we, we think that we have all this regulation around the fact that physicians somehow need to stand between us and knowing what's going on with our body. And so one of the most one of the lasting things that I think will come from this pandemic is certainly a whole new era of people of technologies that are going to teach us that are going to be put into our homes that are going to be accessible to the everyday person without having to go through some costly medical procedure. And we can just go to CVS or order something online and say, Hey, I want to know X, Y, or Z about myself. And I will be allowed to do that without a physician. So that's been inspiring. These rapid tests are one of the best examples of that.
2: One of the jokes that we've made throughout this pandemic and throughout our work has been, you have been required to do everything at home over the past year. You have to work from home, teach your kids from home, grocery shop from home. But When it comes to getting a COVID test, the time where you're probably most contagious or most worried about being (laughs) contagious, you need you to leave your home.
0: (laughs) Right? I know, it's just insane. Isn't it just crazy? It's so crazy. I've thought about that myself, and it's just it just shows how short-sighted our policies have been. These are really basic things that you just said. Like a kindergartner should understand that. And yet we've had policy that has done exactly the wrong thing. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's just been, it's been astounding.
2: Yeah. I am just continually blown away. (laughs) So, well, even thinking, and I don't know what your kind of global, I know back when we were friends, you had a global health background as well. So I am curious if you've thought about this from a global health perspective too. Many countries, developing countries are not going to have access to the vaccine anytime soon. Do you see this as a solution that can be lifted and shifted to other countries as well?
0: Oh, absolutely. I've been trying to work with a few entities to try to get some rapid tests into other countries. And really, they're just for hospital-based work. Most countries don't even have the capacity to do just testing for their patients in the hospitals. And um, so we've been developing all different types of tools, different pooling strategies that we've published, but also, I think, rapid testing, getting these very inexpensive test to the world is absolutely essential. There's no reason why we shouldn't be pushing that. The more we can limit spread globally, the the better off we'll be locally. I mean, that's just, it's just basics of pandemic response. We're worried about variants. And as long as transmission continues, variants are going to remain variants of concern. And if we have variants of concern, then we should be concerned by definition. (laughs) And So yes, I think all of these rapid tests, like other countries would, I mean, are literally dying for them. And so are we, but you know, if we're not going to get out of our own way here, let's just build them for other countries. And this is exactly what a a company like Inova is doing, for example, they have, they're building 10s of millions of these a day, and they're, they've tried to get it into the United States market. um, But without that, they're just saying, well, screw it, you know, the FDA is giving us such, I mean, I don't know that this is what they're saying, but I can they're just they're just moving their tests, you know, to other countries. And frankly, I think that's good. Let's get these tests into other countries. I think we should be, for every test that an American buys, they should be one donated. This has now become billions of dollars. Like, this is no longer just, like, kind of medium money. This is big money. And this is billions and billions of dollars in these tests, whether it's PCR or rapid tests. The United States, we have corporate America making billions of dollars. Every single test that's been performed, in America, for the most part, has had a medical prescription tied to it that's cost on average around $10 or $12 per test added just for some physician fee. Some physician fee that, where a physician doesn't do anything. It's uh, it's just added money. And and we're paying for that. So maybe rather than just having all of that money go to some a few wealthy people's pockets, we could actually be using that to purchase additional tests and get them to help other countries to have access to them. So many things that we could be doing to help the world and corporate greed doesn't exactly do that very well. I would love to see these tests everywhere in the world. I would s- I'd love to see them for truly a dollar a piece. They can be made for about 70 cents or so, you know, depending on the exact technology, maybe a little more, but they can be very cheap and we could be getting them to the rest of the world if we wanted.
2: Yeah. That's been one of the consistent frustrations I think all of us have had people who are in the space and understand the supply chain and the needs and just the ability to actually deploy these is quite easy if we can actually allow for the mechanism to do so. But I was going to ask you, what question do you wish people have asked? (laughs) You've been on so many interviews and done so much media. What do you wish people were asking you?
0: I wish that reporters would ask more of the deep and be willing to tackle more of the deep questions about what is really going wrong with why these tests aren't out to Americans yet. We've been talking about these tests since April of 2020. These tests could have helped to prevent hundreds of thousands of deaths that happened this fall if we stopped outbreaks from emerging. And I've seen many reporters and folks who are covering these tests really focus in on this idea of sensitivity. The first, It's like almost compulsory. If you're writing an article about rapid tests, you have to start it up by saying they're less sensitive than PCR even after i get done talking with them for an hour about how that is not the right way to look at it that they are perfectly sensitive for transmission windows so what i would rather people ask about is what's going on why do we have essentially two scalable tests that are actually authorized is there like why are these tests not getting authorized what is happening that's really preventing uh them from getting through fda regulations um Yeah, I think that they're, I'm personally very concerned about why they're not getting authorized. I've seen a lot of the applications and they're great. This is a, we're in the middle of a public health emergency. The FDA should be like hand-holding companies through the process to get them over the finish line, not rejecting the largest manufacturers of diagnostic tools claims and just preventing Americans from having access. Um, So I'd really like to know why, what is happening that is preventing these tests from becoming authorized? Why is, why are we dealing? With, we have been in Quidel, well, essentially, in terms of the really scalable, deployable tests. And I know for a fact that many other companies have put their applications in and have been rejected um, over and over for months. I don't know, I, I'd really love for somebody to better understand, is there a reason for that? <laughs> and I haven't seen it.
2: So thank you so much, Mike, for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time and giving your insights and expertise when it comes to this important topic. And yeah, thank you for carving out time for DataRobot today.
0: Well, thanks a lot. And thanks for everything you guys are doing and building building more of a science around how these tests can be used and and the platform for them. I think uh, I'm excited to see where ContagionNet lands.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of More Intelligent Tomorrow. Feel free to subscribe to continue discovering the heroes of tomorrow, illuminating the path forward today. Visit us at datarobot.com podcast to learn more.